Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. Okay, let's pray. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desires of every living thing. Amen. Amen. So we just got a little bit of a shock. Uh, About to record the episode, I look back and I see an episode called Negative Apologetics. Um, Two years ago, almost to the day, and um, that's our topic today. So my problem is I teach this stuff, or I'm drawing stuff from my classes, and so I'm just never going to remember what I've actually said to you versus to my students. So I'm hoping it wasn't terribly repetitive, Uh, not on your part, but on my part. So... Yeah, Apologies. and I think I'm 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 not too concerned. Although I probably will go back and you know parse through that one and see exactly what we said two years ago because I can't remember either. Um, but uh, we're going much more in detail, I think, this time around with a you know a full series, probably you know five or six episodes here on the same topic. Right. I think we'll right. we'll have a little bit more to expound upon. So I'm not too too concerned about. Yeah. It. And I know what we didn't do at the bulk of this, of this episode is to talk about the actual skeptical challenges. We probably talked big picture, but not about the doctrine of hell and suffering and just the hard ones. So I'm hopeful. I think maybe the last few episodes I might have repeated myself more, but eh, I'm old. <laughs> no comment. No, Mark, you're not that old. Yeah, I don't know. You got me. You got me. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> no, so you're not that I, old. There's a, yeah, you're. <laughs> oh yeah, right. Um, so hopefully this isn't repeat either. <laughs> but we're going to talk about some hard things, and we'll get more serious, I'm sure, as we as we do. But I thought it'd be a good thing to take a big stab at resurrection apologetics. Um, later on in another episode, we'll come back to it and get more into the weeds on it. But. Um, as a devotion, I'd like to read one of the most important New Testament texts for apologetics, and then we can have the discussion about some hard topics, kind of in the sunlight of a risen Savior. And, and um, yeah, so it, it's the thought that the fact of Jesus risen from the dead towers over um, these sorts of questions, because the fact is just better than arguments about what these other things mean. In other words, if Jesus is alive, then we just have implications to that. We just have to deal with what to make of suffering and those kinds of things. And so I just realized that in my class, um, we spend a whole day on, on these two core issues. The New Testament is reliable beyond, <laughs> beyond words, and that the resurrection is a fact. And then we get to the harder topics. And so I thought uh, the same order might make sense here. That kind of makes sense? Yeah. No, I think that's, okay. it's good to keep, uh, especially when we're about to dive into some of these more challenging, more, you know, skeptical issues mm-hmm. to, to preface that with, uh, you know, a good reminder like this, something that trumps mm-hmm. all of those other things. Yeah. Yeah. Because Jesus is alive and yeah. And so it's also a reminder that when we get to those hard questions to keep Jesus on the stage, keep him in the spotlight, no matter what we're talking about, 
I think that's really useful and might might be Lutheran distinctive too, to some degree. And I often say, no matter what the hard topic is, that I just I just can't take another view than Jesus took, whether it's about hell or about tolerance and culture or whatever it might be. I can't take a different view. And so that's just a way to put Jesus, a living Savior, kind of in the front of all of this. So that crucially important text is from 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll probably kind of start devotional, but just kind of transition into just talking about apologetics. So here we go, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, What I received, I passed on to you as a first importance, first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So his birth to new life into the kingdom of God was just a different story than the rest had. It didn't happen until after Christ ascended, even though he did witness the resurrected Jesus afterwards. So there's that text. Why is it so important? Um, start with the fact that he was with the people in Corinth maybe some 25 years after, which is not very long, 25 years after what we'll call ground zero, the resurrection event itself. When he says, I passed on to you, um, he's talking then about maybe five years earlier. Um, so he wrote it maybe 25 years after. Five years earlier, he was with them physically and present with them. Uh, but then the first words of this text are, for what I received. And what I received takes us back to five, or to be sort of generous, six years after the event itself. And so, now one scholar, Bart Ehrman, is a skeptical New Testament scholar, kind of a tragic figure in that way. He knows so much, and yet he's skeptical about um, the fact of Jesus. But he, he actually would say, no, really, it's going to be like two years from the event itself, because what you have in 1 Corinthians 15 seems like a, a, a confession or a hymn that already had traction by the time Paul received it. And so we have to go backwards some more time, and how long does it, does it take for that to happen? And he, he admits, quite shockingly, we should really think two years after the event. And so what's so interesting about that, <clears throat> and we'll be talking about um, Habermas. What's his first name? Do you remember? Let me look uh, at the she, book right here. Gary? Gary Habermas, that's right, yeah. We'll be talking about his work eventually, and a really important book of his. I saw him on a lecture, on a, in a YouTube video, so you could search as a listener, just Gary Habermas, Gary Habermas, minimal, minimal facts. And he also goes into this. So the idea is if you take the resurrection as ground zero, and then you think of a year as a foot. And so if we were talking, for example, of what is the first <clears throat> evidence we even have that Alexander the Great was a thing? The first evidence in manuscripts that he was real and what Habermas says is now we're a football field away from the event itself, that is the events of Alexander the Great's life. So 300 years away, and so Habermas in his lecture talks about the parking lot and the building across the street, and that's where we are. 
Now, here we have the testimony of Paul um, that is really not questioned as far as the authenticity of this book, 1 Corinthians. It, it is what it purports to be, and all historians think so. The fact that we are now two feet away, even being generous, five or six feet away, just kind of gets you at how different this event is. If a person thinks <clears throat> there's all kinds of stories in history where mythological things gain traction within a few years of the event in the place where they happened, here we mean Jerusalem, there just aren't um, any competing examples of that happening. So in a city where it happened, where in any street corner you can have the where were you went conversation with people who were alive and are still alive, as Paul said when he wrote that letter, um, this is really unique. And this is incredibly compelling evidence. So you and I uh, have both kind of dipped into that book by Gary Habermas. Um, the title you have right in front of you? Yeah, the, I think it's called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And here's how he argues. It's been phenomenally influential. And so the minimal facts would be to say, just for the sake of argument, let's only worry about things that virtually all historians, no matter their beliefs or presuppositions, virtually all people who give their lives to the study of history would concede. And so there's four of those that are just slam dunks, and then there's a fifth one that doesn't enjoy quite as much um, consensus among scholars, but still is really not questioned by many at all. And also for the sake of argument, he would say, let's just look at those New Testament books, as I started to say, that really are not questioned um, by scholars who give their lives to these ancient documents. And that would include 1 Corinthians and Galatians. So 1 Corinthians and Galatians, well, let's say Galatians comes into the mix because that records the conversations Paul had uh, five or six years after the event with the other apostles and beginning with Peter. The Greek word is historiao. They, they historied together, Peter and Paul sharing their notes about what they saw and what they learned from, from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so six years after. So we don't mean, to con don't mean to concede that other New Testament books, though they're questioned or not, that we're not totally confident about them, but just for the sake of argument, those books that aren't questioned and these five facts. And the five facts are that a man known as Jesus Christ was executed by the Romans crucifixions, and they knew what they were doing when it comes to putting someone to death. So any thought that Jesus was a legend, I mean, you can say that stuff, but that's just not what scholars say who know what they're talking about. Um, two is a conversion of the persecutor Saul into Paul. Um, I interviewed one of the real scholars on our campus. I mean, just the, the man people fear because his brain is so big. And just what he thought about apologetics. And he sat me down and talked to me for probably 30 minutes about this issue of Paul. And we'll talk more about him when we, later on someday, we'll get into the details here. But that Paul, a man known to history, does an about faith in his life and for his whole belief system, gives up all his status and privilege and goes to, takes it to, to the grave. He, he'll die for this conviction that he met the Lord Jesus Christ alive on the road to Damascus. That's, that's two, or that's number three. I skipped over the second one, sorry that the disciples later on believed, and not much later on, but just after the resurrection, the disciples believed he appeared to them physically. So the key word as we're framing this is believed, um, because a scholar who doesn't believe in the resurrection would just yet still concede that the disciples clearly believed 
that they met a physically risen Savior. Number four is a conversion of James, the skeptic, before Jesus rose, the brother of Jesus. Um, and the last one with not quite the same of consensus, but still very, very heavy. I'm not sure why there is in total consensus as we will think about this more in detail later on, but that is the empty tomb. That the tomb really was empty on Easter Sunday morning. And that gets into who who was motivated to steal the body. There isn't a group that was motivated to steal the body. Well, I have the testimony of, of unbelievers that his body was stolen because they fell asleep. And so how do you know how do you know that happened if you fell asleep? And so it's a tacit testimony that the tomb really was empty and that it was something that needed to be papered over by the enemies of Jesus. And so that's, there's way more to say about these things. We have a list of like 25 bullets to really think about. Um, but those five facts, Jesus Christ was executed by the Romans, crucifixion. The disciples would believe that they met him resurrected physically, the conversion of Saul, the conversion of James, and that the tomb was empty. And so any myth you might come up with, try to evade what all the signs are pointing to, ideas that have nothing pointing to them, like the swoon theory he passed out, or the theory about uh, mass hallucination or whatever. If uh, those ideas can fit with one of the minimal facts, they will flap against another. And so, I don't know, the groundbreaking influence is that, you know, there are liberal seminaries out there, including liberal Lutheran seminaries, where People for years have said, well, some kind of, I don't know, quasi-metaphysical event that happened as opposed to physical resurrection. Well, the apostles bent over backwards. That's not what they're claiming. They're claiming, you know, Jesus said, touch my side, you know, see my hands and feet. He ate fish in front of them and so on. And so in more and more seminaries, what I'm told is that, and what I read is that people with that point of view are saying to the effect, Doggone it, looks like he did it. Doggone it, looks like he actually pulled it off. Or C.S. Lewis says, as a skeptic saying, rum thing, whatever that means. <laughs> but rum thing, it seems like he did it. <laughs> and so I'll let you react a little bit to this wonderful material. I have kind of more things to think about. Yeah, but. I think, um, and it's been, uh, I haven't prepped this because we, we decided to make this the like the introduction. Um, so I haven't gone over this material. No, I threw but, this at you. Yeah. No, I didn't. No, and it's great. I think it's mm-hmm. um, good to keep me on my toes. I think the <laughs> so, like the empty tomb, and also you know the second minimal fact of the disciples believing that he appeared to them physically, being somewhat related, and and even the first one that you know was he actually crucified? Was he actually a, a real historical figure? Like all of these things, I right. think are somewhat intertwined, but by themselves still are, you know, distinguishing them and using them as like their own piece of evidence to, to use those as like, okay, if this is all we have, that's still pretty compelling. I think also one thing we did touch on in an earlier episode, I believe was, uh, the, is it the FF Bruce book where he goes ad nauseum about the, the disciples testimony and just how important that was and what that actually means and, and how to, uh, you know, how do you reconcile that in light of all of these other arguments that are there? So I don't really have too much to say about it, but those, yeah, no, I think it's, it, good it, stuff. It, uh, that's what it ties back to for me. Yeah. And if you try, if you try to say, well, this is all the conspiracy, it just strains the imagination. It just really does. Cause Paul's not the only one that gladly died for what he said he saw. 
And so I don't mean to get ahead of us. We'll come back to all this stuff. But the conspiracy idea. Um, yeah, it's like yeah. mass hallucination is a pretty, pretty radical, you know, <laughs> thing to suppose would happen. Right. You know, there's this Chuck Colson who was in the Nixon White House. And after the Watergate thing, he became a Christian because he said, you know, we could not keep that conspiracy under wraps. It was just impossible. The thing unraveled. And it was a much smaller issue and much fewer men. But there's no way the apostles... That's, that's interesting. Thing. That, that, that Isn't was, it interesting? Uh, like, that's the... Well, how to say it? Straw that broke the, tra- the camel's back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. It is, is interesting. The, you know, I couldn't keep Watergate under wraps. And that was and, nothing compared to and this. And then, you know... Well, I'm a Christian this now. Some big hoax. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Yeah>. Naturally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just cool. It's just really cool. Um, sometimes I think what trumps everything for me, if I ever had a sagging faith, it's been a long time since I wasn't just completely convinced of, of the resurrection, but I just kind of go to the apostles. And I just, there's a place where Paul is talking about the risen Jesus and just blurts out, I'm not lying. <laughs> I'm not lying. And Peter's saying, we did not follow a cleverly invented, invented stories when we tell you about his majesty. And John saying, what we've looked at, what our hands have touched. You know, this we, this we com- proclaim to you and make our joy complete. And I just find it's just so self-authenticating. Um, either they're the worst men in history to say, you should gladly die for this. Or they're just witnesses to this incredible thing. And you just can't tell me. That's, that's the alternatives, really. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, that's what they are. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, you just can't tell me. But so I, I love Gary Harper Moss. The video, he's just a normal guy. Could work out more maybe, you know. <laughs> but he has made a huge contribution. And maybe I'll bite my tongue and as we transition to, okay, in, in that sunlight of a living Savior, we can take on these questions and, and uh, not be afraid of them, but look at them honestly. Um, but anything more you would... Want to throw into the next? Yeah, term. I'm not sure. <clears throat> I think there might be something to talk about uh, doubt. I think I saw. I can't remember if I saw a clip of it somewhere, but someone said he was on a, you know, on a stage debating a ton of atheists at an atheist convention or something, and he asked this crowd of people like, "How many of you have ever doubted that there wasn't a God?" And not one of them raises their hands. And he says, and it's just a stark contrast to every Christian that you ever speak to, the thousands and thousands of people you come across, everyone has, has doubts <laughs> like this. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly. I don't have a, it's not a thesis, but I, it's intriguing to me to think about. I'm not sure if yeah, it has a I'm, place in, in this conversation, but it, I it does creep up. I've said a little bit about that just in terms of a faith is a gift and and it sits, my new life sits side by side in me with my sinful nature that is just a doubter. Maybe it's not that surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, and about, yeah, and about the atheist, the postmodern thing, sorry if I said this too, but is that people really can imagine the non-existence of God in a way that at certain times in history it would have been very difficult mm-hmm. to imagine his non-existence. But today we can, um, just for all the cultural reasons and Today, faith does feel more fragile to many believers, just as, just as far as they experience it, just because of the barrage and the assault and the worldview that kind of surrounds us. So, yeah. But um, 
That's why I like this fact. If you can imagine going through life and just finally as a Christian and finally daring to, with fear and trembling, to look at what is the evidence. <laughs> oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I often talk to students about what is the value of this or the limitations, you know? Um, I suppose in an intellectual climate where the resurrection of Jesus just strikes your mind as a fairy tale to some people's minds, that it's some strange cultural relic from a place far away and long time ago. Why does this persist that a man rose from the dead? That maybe it would just psychologically help a person to actually weigh the evidence instead of just having that kind of reaction. So maybe that's way to think about how would this actually help? This isn't law or gospel. Nothing I've said really confronts us with our sin. Nothing I've said really so far today really absolves us of that by the blood of Jesus. And so this isn't law and gospel. Um, so I'm just thinking some sort of psychological preparation, maybe. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Because what I would say is, what's the least I can say about the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Well, I can say that there are famous Jewish people, towering figures in history that concluded that Jesus is alive. They just were compelled to. It didn't make them believers that this was the Son of God reconciling the world to himself on the cross. And so that goes to something we talked about, the distinction between what you can what you can explore and what we testify to by faith, by the Word of God. I can say, the least I can say is to anybody is you believe in other historical events with way less evidence mm-hmm. than this. You just, you just do. Yeah. And so I would say, you know, a thinking person ought to have an opinion about this. You've got an opinion about COVID and vaccine. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should have an opinion about this because the third thing I'll say, then I'll stop, is that if I were to try to argue against the resurrection, <clears throat> I don't know what I would say. I honestly don't know what, I, what in the world I would try to say for a plausible alternative idea because I know too much, you know too much. You know? Yeah. Limitation might be that a person who doesn't believe it can just simply say whatever. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened, but I know it's not a resurrection because that's impossible. And a person can probably just hang their head on that because if a Mormon person brought me evidence for the Moroni civilization, I really wouldn't be interested. Mm -hmm. So it's the same kind of thing, you know? And so to be honest about the limitation, I think is probably a good thing. We, we believe by faith, and that's where our screen confidence is. It's in the scriptures themselves. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's exactly. I think it's a similar argument to the validity of the New Testament texts or Old Testament texts, sure. for that fact, uh, for that matter. Just that, you know, the the amount of evidence there is for the validity of things that you take for granted or believe without questioning, compared to something like the New Testament or the resurrection, it's uh, kind of staggering. It's like the, the deck's kind of stacked in the, the evidence uh, for these things. And so that's something like, there is some comfort there. <coughs> Sorry for that pause. I had to turn <laughs> my mic off. Yeah. Um, no, there's a lot of comfort there. I, I knew a man once I was in the ministry and the pastoral ministry and he wanted to believe, and it was just, I think, wanting to be with his family and not have that barrier all the time, and they they were happy people, and he wasn't. And so he was in this strange position as, as an unbeliever wanting to believe, and I look back on that, and, and I just wonder, 
uh, would this have helped him? Mm-hmm. If all this struck his mind as absurd and illogical, and but didn't know all, all the evidence there is points this way. All the evidence there is points in one direction. Maybe it would have helped him. I, I don't know. It wouldn't have been what sit, would bring him to faith, but maybe it would have helped him to hear the scriptures in a different way uh, and maybe experience that same self, self-authenticating when the apostles just tell us in their own plain language, in their own simple eloquence, mm-hmm. um, what, they know to be tra- what they know to be a fact. I think there's also maybe a distinction between, you know, knowing and believing that something is true versus feeling that something is true. And that's maybe where, you know, sometimes doubts can creep in, where there are times when, you know, in the past when I've had, you know, the thought comes into my head and I, I have a moment of doubt and weakness. It's usually a feeling about something where something's presented in a way that's just like, could it really? Mm-hmm. And, and, but that doesn't, that doesn't, uh, equate to the the knowledge part of that which is like knowing and believing that this is true mm-hmm. you're you're like you're asking a question to that thing and you can feel a certain type of way about that whether it's like uncertain or you know it this doesn't seem plausible or just like I can't make sense of it um but but then contrasting that with the you know just the the belief itself that I think Maybe there's a distinction there that that could be made because I I think there have been times not too many recently, but in the past when I've had something, it's usually an argument will be made that leads me to feel like I'm questioning the thing versus actually mm-hmm. completely rejecting it outright. And so it's <coughs> it's uh you wrestle with that uh, the feeling of of that. Yeah, yeah, I I agree that almost sort of triggers something. Tell me if I've told you this before. Um, Tim Keller, who's now in heaven, um, good Presbyterian, uh, confessed his faith beautifully. We, we would differ in certain things. Um, anyway, but a very powerful apologist and, and knew what he was doing. And if he had a student go off to college, university, and come back and say, Pastor Keller, I'm losing my faith in college. Have we talked about this? I, what I, don't, I don't recall, so okay. it'll, it'll be a great refresher. <laughs> <if I had. laughs> what he says is, this is kind of crass, but what he says is, who are you sleeping with? In other words, that this isn't an intellectual thing that's happening to you. you. You're living in a way, potentially, that makes Jesus not very convenient anymore mm-hmm. and, and makes, at the same time makes some of these hard questions start to fester more. Yeah. But it's really not about the evidence. It's not about the scriptures being unclear or not powerful. It's, there's a whole other thing going on, potentially. And so... As we talk about the defeaters, I kind of keep that in my head that this is to some degree can be a smoke screen. Mm-hmm. And if I answer your defeater completely, you'll have another one. Yeah. And in your back pocket, we've maybe said that too. Yeah, that peeling back the layers of, you know, sometimes yeah. the argument is like, it's just meant to deflect away from the thing that's really there that is exactly. the ultimate thing at the very core of yeah. why you can't see this as true or, or what's, right. what's going on beneath the surface. Right. Famous atheists become Christian saying about their atheism before, I didn't want him to be true. I didn't want it to be true. It wasn't convenient. It was, Christ makes demands on us to take up our cross and follow, and, and I just don't care for that. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's not a problem of, of intellect. It's a problem of, problem of the will, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but So we'll come back to this. We'll come back to some detail 
that lies behind the, the minimal facts, minimal facts. Uh, just one, since I'm thinking about it and don't want to forget it. The more I think about the fact that the first witnesses to the empty tomb were women, um, the more I think that is incredible evidence. All these things in the, under the category of you wouldn't make it up this way. Women who in that culture had no, their testimony didn't count. So why are they the primary testifiers? Mm-hmm. You know, there's, so there's a lot of little spotlights you can click on one at a time until the risen Christ appears in this stage. A lot of things that are, we've said, I think, more in the category of clues than just, you know, proofs, like a silver bullet slam dunk proof, but clues, clues, clues. And everything there is pulls in one direction, like I said. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, yeah. person not to have an opinion, an opinion about that. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm excited to actually go through the material ahead of time and, <laughs> and be able to, to speak more to it. Um, but the idea of... Uh, Using, you know, if you're going to, you know, collect a deck of arguments that you can use or put on the table and you're going to be selective about the ones that we can all agree mm-hmm. on, I think that's just a great strategy to like, yeah, it is great. this is just a good way to think about it so that you're not getting distracted by, you know, red herrings or side right. side roads that could lead somewhere else that don't really actually mean anything. So, yeah. So what we'll also come back to is a long detailed list um, for the other core issue of the New Testament being phenomenally reliable. We'll come back to that, too. Mm-hmm. There's so, so much there. Yeah. So much there. Um, but, good, hopefully, hopefully, again, that kind of sets a tone for why we can courageously, and without fear, take on some hard questions, because the fact of the resurrection just stands above all this. Mm-hmm. The towering figure of a living Jesus um, is our confidence. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I this is not scientific. I was a home missionary though, and a church planter, and, and I have often twenty students in the class I'm referring to, and so for them, I've got a top twenty of these defeaters. Not scientific, but my own sense is that there are five, five that to me at least personally feel like the big ones, and I'll just mention them all, and we can start wherever we feel like it. I think I mm-hmm. know where I'd like to start, but a loving God could not send someone to hell. There's no such thing as truth. Actually, I'd probably rank above that. There's too much suffering in the world to believe in God. Just because we maybe said 80% of people. Mm-hmm. That's really what it's about. Four, science has decredited, discredited Christianity. And five, the church is grossly bigoted and intolerant. And again, it's really an endless list. And finding 20 wasn't difficult. Mm-hmm. But, and so these are just the but, ones that you thought or have seen as most prevalent? Most prevalent slash most difficult mm-hmm. is what I would say. Yeah. And that's just anecdotal. That's just my own experience talking yeah. for what it's worth. Would you yeah, have anything I've, come to think, come to mind that you would add? Or? Um, I think the biggest one, the biggest ones that I've come across are, you know, the, the idea of truth and then the mm-hmm. idea of suffering. Those are the two that, that come up the most. Yeah, and usually so. those ones if there are other arguments, those are the ones that are really underneath kind of like, you know, that's the core argument and then other arguments spawn off at the top of that one. And so that's, what's the one that's underneath that winds up, you know, sometimes talking in circles about, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah, those, those two are the the primary, the ones that I've seen the most often. So a loving God could not send someone to hell. Um, you want to say a few things about that one? I mean, any thinking Christian has thought about these things, and there's nothing that makes it easy. 
Yeah, I think the this one might actually be similar to the or this one sometimes comes as one of those arguments that's tangential to the suffering argument. Um, you know, if if God was all powerful, all benevolent and and uh, all knowing. That, you know, why couldn't he create a world without suffering? Also, why would he make a world where it would be possible to like send someone to hell? And so those those things kind of those things kind of go hand in hand sometimes. But you mm-hmm. know, the the thing that one of the quotes that I like the most, I think, is a, a C.S. Lewis quote. There are two types of people in the world: those who say to God, "Thy will be done," and those to whom God says, "Thy will be done." And so right. it's it's right. it's right. you know if the the people that are in hell are there because they did not want to be with God is the, you know, that's kind of the, the counter to that argument. And then you can usually after that, there's like, okay, well, what about the scenario where someone, you know, never had a chance to hear about your savior and that type of thing. But I think that's a, a separate topic almost. It's kind of like a deflection that gets away from the point that you know, most people, they would just rather, they want a world or they want to believe in a world. They desire a world that does not have a God. And that will be ultimately <laughs> what comes true for them. Right. I, I agree that what's defining to hell is the absence of of God's blessing. Mm-hmm. Um, so God has to sustain any reality, but he's not present with blessings. <clears throat> you know, our, our theologians debate what is hell. Um, what kind of fire is this? If it's in the dark also, Mm -hmm. um, is it an immaterial fire? If the place was made for evil spirits and demons, um, what kind of fire doesn't consume eventually? Um, and so there's this part of that, that remains sort of mysterious, but there's no comfort in the question of what if the fire is immaterial, whatever it is, it's described in those terms, right? Yeah. the, the the big answer to that is just to change the question to how good it is not to ever, to never going to know what that is, mm-hmm. right? It's such a ironic thing if someone were to miss out on heaven because of this objection. Yeah. When the bottom line is that my God went through hell for you, what did your God do? Mine went through hell for me. And without that doctrine, you cut the nerve to the gospel and you cut the nerve to... I mean, you can't quantify, but how much of my gratitude is the gratitude that God went through hell for me and I will never know what that's like. Yeah. And the, the door is shut to me forever. And the personal testimony that says, I would be there without Jesus. Mm-hmm. So if someone asks me, are you telling me I'm going to hell? Are you saying I'm going to hell? It's not me better than you. It's what I'm willing to say about myself without Jesus. Mm-hmm. But on some level, it really is a matter of faith, too. Yeah. You know, maybe there's some days I f- kind of feel it more that um, the deserving of hell, or I kind of feel more that um, a good God as a corollary to goodness has to care about badness and has to respond. And sometimes it may kind of more make sense because of that sense of justice, but mm-hmm. the fact that it's, etern- that it's eternal and never ending, it's, at some point we just have to say, it is a matter of faith. Um, and But what I said before, I was kind of thinking about this. I can't take a view Jesus any different than what Jesus took. And you don't have to read 
scary Old Testament scriptures to get this doctrine, but it comes from the mouth of Jesus. Yeah. I think two things. One, <laughs> spending time trying to describe this place is that can very quickly just lead off track. You know, is it fire? Is it immaterial fire? It doesn't matter. I think it's at, at some point, mm-hmm. it's just, I have been, you know, sometimes there's like a, could have a thought about like some morbidly curious, like, I wonder what that would be like. And then to that, you would just, you know, someplace that even if you could potentially experience it would be so bad that you would never want to even touch, you would never want to go near that place. So no, they're an all-powerful God crying, <laughs> praying over and over, weeping through the night. Please don't make me drink this cup. And and how much <clears throat> less I am than that, how could I ever, you know? So No, I think the first the first thirty seconds in hell. I mean, because the despair would be so unspeakable. Mm-hmm. This this never ends. But you know, C.S. Lewis says some things about hell that I think go too far in rationalizing, mm-hmm. trying to make palatable or make sense of something that um, is, is a different matter than that. But when he says the thing you allude to, in his own memoirs, they're shot through with, I told God, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone. Right? And one day he could have said, okay, I leave you alone. Mm-hmm. And that, that really is the defining thing to hell. It's the being left alone. Mm-hmm. Um, that is from God's gracious presence yeah, and the absence. The absence, exactly right. Yeah. So sometimes I say not just God's holiness is a corollary of His goodness, and this, but I, I like to kind of keep the spotlight on Jesus for this whole conversation. And um, I've written somewhere that Jesus, of course, is the Michael Jordan of ethics. Um, <laughs> what? And, and, I'm sorry, it just that that catches me off well, guard. In the, well, no so God intended. is not more. I'm not more ethical than God. Mm-hmm. I'm not kinder or more compassionate, anything like that. And Jesus has a moral sense, being who He is, that just simply is superior by miles, heavens above the earth. And therefore, one thing I do is I disqualify myself. Mm-hmm. The sinner doesn't really have a right to speak on this question. I, mm-hmm. I'm too much. You know, I'm too much implicated by it. But so look at Jesus and look at his relationship with Judas. That just puts a human face on. Judas is just is determined to get to hell and there's only one man standing mm-hmm. in the way, and that's and that's Jesus loving him and dying for him and calling him friend right to the end. And so so Jesus sees something sees the reality of hell, sees the necessity of hell. And I see on the cross him doing something absurd, something mm-hmm. unexpected, something mm-hmm. just scandalous and radical and almost desperate yeah. to keep that from happening to anybody necessarily. Um, it just doesn't happen, have to happen to anybody. And so I'm going to trust, you know, what, what I know Jesus saw with clear sight. Yeah. And I'm not going to call it unfair and then so ironically and tragically mm-hmm. lose my way. And, you know, and so. Yeah, the, yeah, the God go I believe in that is all powerful, all knowing, all benevolent says that it is, it is his will that no one ends up in this place. And for someone who is 
more benevolent than I am to want that and to tell me that that is what he desires. And then for the reality of this place to still be there and my inability to be able to question that ethically, mm-hmm. as you say with, with Michael Jordan, it's, it's like, I, I, it is not his will for anyone to be there. And if, if that's, if I believe in that God and he says that, then that is true. And so absolutely that I can't make any other argument than that. I think. Right. There's the, the, the sure hope that when Christ returns, he not only reveals his glory and shares it with us, but he's also going to be vindicated to great shouts of our God has done all things well. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to say that now it's hard to line my will up with his as far as what, must happen to people without Christ. But, um, boy, if we don't keep saying that to people. I had a question in class just today. was, what do you say when someone asks you, so you're saying I'm going to hell? And should I answer them? And my answer was, of course you should. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they, you owe it to them to be clear yeah. and loving. Compassionate, too, but but clear and loving. One of the two of the comedic duo Penn and Teller is famous for saying, if you're a Christian and you're not telling me about hell, I have no respect for you. You think that's going to happen to me and you're not telling me. Mm-hmm. I have no respect for you. Yeah. And I just think that's, that's good. I mean, yeah. that's common sense. It's dancing around the issue. Refutable. Yeah. Dancing around the issue isn't love or compassion. That's probably more akin to cowardice, I would think. Yeah. Definitely. Or, you know, I'm afraid of the conversation that happens after that, mm-hmm. which is also interesting. <laughs> you know, yes, you can say, but th- that's not the end of the story either, <laughs> especially, you know, going back to what we talked about at the beginning of the episode and, mm-hmm. and using, you know, still keeping Christ on the stage. And now you can put the spotlight back there where it belongs. That's the, the natural <laughs> progression of that. So, So I was thinking the reason why these defeaters fit our podcast, which is about communication, is when I present these speech topics in class and and start the research, I have a whole page what I call the burdens. And as I research this doctrine, let's say the the burdens include, well, who's saying this? What do they mean being by it? What are their hidden assumptions? Where is it coming from? Is it coming from a broken heart? Is it coming from an intellectual place and so on? Because the challenge is, it is very easy to speak to the choir, um, to talk to a room full of people that have already dealt with this doctrine, mm-hmm. and bent their knees before the word of Christ, yeah. submitted to it. But then the communication challenge is kind of what I bring to apologetics. There's people on our staff here, one especially who's way better at just the academic discipline. But I'm always thinking, how do we talk to real people? Mm-hmm. And, and that's why the thought that this is a broken heart is important. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing someone who has died without Jesus, right? <clears throat> yeah. There's, there's a man in my ministry who his dad had died out of faith. And he actually said to me, Pastor, if I believe this, I have to believe my father in, is in hell. And what that feels like is he'll never get over this. He will never get over this. This is too much. This is too big. But he did. By word and spirit, and so <clears throat> mm-hmm. the point I would make is faith is a miracle. Whoever has it, mm-hmm. that I have it, that you have it, it's no less a miracle. Um, because our own sinful, fl- sinful flesh was a 
was a walking, talking defeater, really, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, but it is a communication question too. Yeah. Other, def- other, other defeaters, like, um, people are basically good. Just highlights how challenging that is to not talk past people and what they mean by their words and stuff. And so, but yeah, this is, um, <clears throat> this is too important not to mm-hmm. talk about. I suppose as a communication issue, I think about this little story. Um, woman quits a church a church because the pastor is always saying without jesus you're going to go to hell and she joins another church and and someone a friend says but i know the pastor at your new church and he says the same thing people go to hell if they don't trust in the salvation god has wrought in christ and the lady just answered yeah he, he does say the same thing but with tears in his eyes and so that's the communication piece mm-hmm. it doesn't add any power to the message but but that we're not gleeful about yeah. this. We 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 agonize over it. There's godly sorrow about this truth. Yeah. But but I look at Christ on the cross and I just say He's not there for nothing. Mm-hmm. He's not there for nothing. Yeah, and those are tough ones. Without this doctrine, he kind of is. Yeah, I can't. You know? I can't imagine being in that conversation with you know someone who has to reconcile this understanding mm-hmm. about his father or or the other one. Um, it's a broken heart. But those are. I think this question, I think maybe is like a, the ultimate goal. If I'm like, I mean, just taking what I'm hearing now and thinking about what I would say, if I were to go immediately into an apologetic conversation like this would probably be to do as the, you know, at Penn and Teller would say, you you have to acknowledge this. You want to like, it's necessary, but that's not the, the focus. Like we're not dwelling on this the alternative of this is a very joyous thing that you want to share with people. And that's where you want to take it. And so, and so that's the. the, Yeah. We're not trying to scare people into heaven. Yeah. Yeah. We're not trying to scare people into heaven, but, but the reality is the reality. Mm -hmm. And it, it tells you why a savior is necessary. So there's other defeaters that would kind of fit like there's no moral absolutes and Mm -hmm. all kinds of, there's, there's a organic connection to a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I think can't really pull apart completely. There's also but. a, you know, I could see this taking a more logical turn of, you know, if there is a God mm-hmm. that is good, that almost necessitates the converse of that. But you can't have, a, when you say that one thing is on the spectrum of this good, ver- of, you know, you can't have a qualifier without being able to then have a hierarchy of goodness or badness. And so there's like a, a logical explanation sort of that you could take for like, yeah, there, if there are good things, then naturally there has to be the existence of things that are worse than that. Mm-hmm. And it's a difficult, I mean, you're just acknowledging it. That's the, the point isn't to dwell on the bad things. Then it's to recognize their existence and then move forward. One of my favorite short stories, maybe this is a tangent. Um, uh, Ursula Le Guin, I believe. She has a short story called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And it's just about this, you know, it's like an eight-page short story where she just describes this utopia. And then at the very end, in the last page or last page or two, she describes the, you know, the reason that this utopia could exist is because there's one poor child being like tortured in a dungeon or something and everyone just ignores it, but they recognize that that's necessary for this place to be. So there's like a, 
And it gets a little bit into like the ethical dilemma of this. And then some people choose to walk away from this thing. But I think logically speaking, understanding that having something that's good also <laughs> requires that there are things that you can now rate on a scale and therefore you are establishing that there is a a logical good and bad now that are part of the equation. That's <clears throat> that's all there is. And then you can use that to move on towards things that are more more important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we might get into that. I the, I mentioned the defeater of so much suffering. But linked to that, of course, is the, the more philosophical question about the existence of evil mm-hmm. and the causes of evil. We can get into that if we like. That might really kind of belong on the short list. Yeah. Um, last thing here, um, I, I think I kind of blew people away at a Bible study not long ago when I offered this scenario. Um, imagine Mother Teresa was sort of the, I don't know what the word is, the paragon of goodness in mm-hmm, people's minds. Mm-hmm. Imagine that she dies <clears throat> in self-righteous unbelief. And imagine that Adolf Hitler um, goes through the pain and agony of sincere repentance and believes in Jesus on his deathbed. Well, now you got to imagine these two crossing each other, uh, her on her way to hell and he on his way to heaven. And people just stared at me like, <laughs> and all, all I could say was, look, this is the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so the defeater of hell gives us a chance to say what actually is the gospel. No one deserves God. No one. But yet God the Son dies for everyone. Mm-hmm. Everyone. And so it's just not about personal goodness, and there's no sin too big, no sinner too awful. Mm-hmm. And, and this defeater can become what I call in class the road to Oxford. So the, the road to a clear, Oxford's beautiful mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's ancient and it's glorious. Mm-hmm. So a road to a road to that confession of our true subject, mm-hmm. which in Lutheran apologetics is Christ crucified and raised. Yeah. So yeah, it's it it lets the gospel be the scandalous thing that it is. And we just can't be wishy washy about what the gospel is if we're going to bring clarity to these questions. Yeah. I think sometimes yeah. the you know, it is a pretty, I mean, I'm trying to imagine those two crossing paths on on their way. It's a very strange, bewildering thing it's to imagine. Very but I mean, I, you look at, you know, everything that Jesus did in the New Testament points towards, you know, what's on the outside versus what's on the inside is not like the, um, there was the, the time where he's posed to the question is like, will will this, um, should we stone this prostitute? And he's able to, you know, the people who thought they were the most righteous at the time, they were looked up to for their righteousness and they're kind of left wondering, you know, and then he's also on mm-hmm. the cross and telling a, you know, a, someone who is worthy of being crucified by the Roman Empire that today you'll be with me in paradise. Mm-hmm. And so that is the gospel. That is the gospel. <laughs> that's what we believe. That's, the, that's what we believe. Deal with it, and, and I'm so, almost. You almost hope it happens. You want you want that to happen every time. You really, you really do. And I'm repeating myself again, but to not ever assume people know mm-hmm. the simplicity of the gospel. Yeah. To just to what you just yeah to mirror the God's will that no one goes to hell, right. that everyone will be with Him in paradise. That's yeah. How could I not Period. echo that? Mm-hmm. What you just did is cool because it happened in class today too. A student gave a speech on 
Um, a lesser defeater, but all oh, religion only puts up barriers between people. And we have a long Q&A for each one with feedback. Mm-hmm. And I just asked them, if you had given more room for Christ crucified and raised, or just given more room for Jesus in your presentation, um, and some really relevant scriptures, what would you have thought of? And it was interesting. I wasn't sure if it was a safe question, if he'd do okay. But then he, he comes back with, oh, I would have told the story of the Samaritan woman. And I thought, I was just like, wow, that is perfect. It's Jesus crosses the barrier of her being a woman. He crosses the barrier of her being a Samaritan. And this last barrier that she's holding back that she thinks he would never cross over is who she really is as a, you know, a woman who's living with a man after five failed marriages. Mm-hmm. But that that's what's so, it's such a playground to take these topics and really take them into the Gospels yeah. and just... Let Jesus be the answer to it. And so Jesus crossing every barrier for you and I, especially the big one, you know, that our, our sin. But so you just did the same thing with, you know, with how woman caught in adultery. And mm-hmm. Excellent. That's just great. How should we think about the time, John? I don't know how long we're into yeah, this. Yeah, we're, we're about... Dealt with one of them. Probably 50 <clears throat> minutes in. 50? Okay. I think so. I think maybe we tr- uh, we've kind of touched on suffering. I think that was another one of the big ones. Okay. Do you want to do you want to go further with that? Uh, yeah, I just need to think about where I would start off by that. Um, the <laughs> yeah, the major defeater is uh, there's so much suffering in the world. Uh, there's too much suffering in the world to believe in God. I I really think it's it's uh, in parallel with the with the previous one, which was a loving God not being able to send someone into hell. It's uh. Because it it deals with the benevolence. Yeah. Are you pausing meaningfully, or are you? Yeah. <laughs> not not. <laughs> I, I'm pausing, but not meaningfully. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I, you're right. Where to start? Um, so, what has come up before in recent podcasts is that to deny God because of suffering makes suffering. How many times worth worse? Mm-hmm. Because now it's meaningless, and now there's no hope. You know, so I like to start with kind of a theology of suffering. We won't do it expansively now, but what we bring to this conversation is what is the biblical view of this in, in kind of a mm-hmm. sketch form? Like, where does it come from? Yeah. Okay. Well, sin is the great no wonder that explains why life is so hard because sin brought death and pain and suffering into the world. So we have an explanation for it, not one that helps us if mm-hmm. we leave it at that level. We can say, what does God do unique, uniquely through suffering? We can talk about that all day. Um, everything I know about Jesus, every bit of compassion in me that reaches for the pain of other people has come through suffering. And there are things that he can, seems like he can only do in, in under the shadow, you know, Above all, I think the central answer is God on the cross. So God's suffering for us needs to be completely constantly in view. Mm-hmm. God, God is not indifferent to our suffering, nor is it that he knows nothing about it. But he's suffered in a way for us, in our place, innocently, um, to show that, to, to reveal his massive heart to us. Never has God more hid, hidden and in the gore of the cross and never has God more revealed down to his very essence than that he's willing to do that for us. And so 
that's got to be really central yeah. to to our answer. And the last piece I'd put in the theology of this would be, maybe there are others, but just how this all looks in the view of eternity, how it all looks looking back from that vantage point where the, the pain now is part of the joy then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just to not sort of leave out of the mix or leave the chance that the person we're talking to knows any of this material. Mm-hmm. Um, because who knows which piece is the piece, you know, supported by scripture that would just be so foreign and so unknown and so unconsidered um, before this. And so yeah, C.S. Lewis has a book on the problem of pain. And it's one interesting thing is when people use the phrase, all that pain, how can there be a God with all that pain? And Lewis explains that really isn't logical because there's no one suffering all that pain. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't accumulate in one person bad enough that a child suffers and we have to deal with that honestly i know that's bad enough but there's no one suffering all of it mm-hmm. um except there's one who did mm-hmm. so isaiah 53 surely he carried all our sorrows and all our diseases and and there's one who in whom all this pain accumulated mm-hmm. and who went went through a real hell by any way you define hell he's in hell on the cross out of love for us and so god is not indifferent um far from it for sure. Whether we can explain every particular case of suffering. No, I'm going to go to my grave with things that just I don't understand. They just don't make sense to me. I don't have a theory on why God would allow that particular thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I've come to a place of not really having a high expectation about understanding everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I have what I need in Christ and the cross. I think two things. The first is that now that I've <clears throat> excuse me, collected my thoughts a little bit more on this, <laughs> on this one is, uh, usually when this comes up in conversation for me, it's, there's usually, a a singular event or a singular type of event that has happened to the, the person I'm talking to, or they're witnessing that happening to others. And it's just a really difficult thing to reconcile. And that's what it, that's what, um, kind of spawns the conversation or that's where their thoughts are. are. It's just like, it's really difficult to look and see that, you know, genocide's happening or it's really difficult Mm -hmm. to look and see that, you know, someone would get taken advantage of in such a way or that, you know, this particular injustice is going on all the time and, or for that to happen to you. And, and so that's kind of where it starts and that's what, what leads it forward. And so that's, that's usually where I'm engaging that is, is dealing with that inability or, you know, it is a really difficult thing to, to reconcile, as you said. The next would be that I think many people do understand the value of going through trials and tribulations. You know, suffering, it does have meaning, especially like you can make parallels to Here's one cross country. We can go back to sure. <laughs> back to our, our roots. The let's, but let's like do. yeah, you go to you go through training. You you purposefully put yourself through something akin to suffering, and and that yields benefits. You you get stronger through that, and then you can take that and apply that to like many cases of of suffering, where this galvanizes you uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Suffering does have purpose. And especially when you like look at the ultimate suffering that happened on the cross and the ultimate purpose that that served, it's like these are all just shades, slivers of that reflection that are there. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, you just made me think of a fascinating book by Philip Yancey. He, he co-wrote with a surgeon, um, but it's called Where's God When It Hurts? And the book starts out with the doctor's notes on leprosy, on Hansen's disease, the version of leprosy that is you can't feel pain. Mm-hmm. And it's a painless hell that people with that disease live in because they stick their hand in the fire to grab the potato and they just, you know, burn themselves and get infected and they they lose their eyes because their their pain sensors aren't responding to things that are irritating them and they turn a key too hard in a lock and break their fingers and it's a painless hell. And so he starts by saying that the pain network in our bodies is flat out amazing, mm-hmm. flat out stunning in its design. Uh, and we'll start there with some gratitude for pain and all its effects that we need so much spiritually too. But then, of course, the book does acknowledge that pain does seem to be, I don't know, a river running over its banks, I guess, you know, in, in terms of its purposes. Pain pain beyond all yeah. understanding is also very real. But, but it's an interesting way to start, and he's very good at telling the stories, like, where is God? Where is God when it hurts? And that God is on the cross hurting, you know. Not anymore, of course, but he did in a way that is just central to the answer, I would say. Um, I was also thinking of, he's got another book called Disappointment with Disappointment with God. The subtitle is like three questions no one asks out loud or something. Is God fair? Is he silent? Is he far away? Mm-hmm. Something like that. But the, the bulk of the book is a treatment of Job, just a really fresh treatment oh, yeah. of Job who just lost everything, you know, and the, the, the main thing I take away from reading this book years ago was he points out that Job never finds out about chapter one. So Job never finds out that this is a bargain, so to speak, where the devil says, the reason Job trusts you and adores you, God, is that you've made his life so charm mm-hmm. and so easy. If you don't, if you take away that care and protection, he will curse you. Something like that. Wow. And I've so never Yancey's, thought about that, that yeah. narrative choice to, to reveal that this was a bargain that happened. Yeah. And Job doesn't find out. Mm-hmm. So there's that famous thing toward the end of the book where God suddenly appears in a thunderstorm and says, mm-hmm. Face yourself like a man, Job. Mm-hmm. I will mm-hmm. question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world and so on? It goes on for, I don't know how, how many chapters of just going through creation in this powerful poetry. But Job's question isn't answered there either. It's just the reality of God and the humbling of Job before that that makes makes Job withdraw the question. I ask things too wonderful to know, he says, and I repent. But what's, what is most compelling, I think, is Philip Yancey's, I think, very correct framing. He says that the universe... So, th- so the question is, is God worth trusting no matter what? No matter what your eyes see, no matter what you feel in your body and your heart, is God worth trusting? And what he says is the universe is leaning in for, to hear Job's answer mm-hmm. because it has cosmic significance. That Job should say, yes, God is worth trusting and adoring no matter what. At one point he says, though he slay me, I will trust him. And it's like he got... A, the knife is in your heart and you're meeting his eyes mm-hmm. and you're saying, I trust you. I trust you. Why? Well, we can certainly bring up Job 19. I know that my Redeemer lives. Mm-hmm. 
but we can say our why is even better informed than Job reaching for that by faith. It's still a startling confession, mm-hmm. a physical resurrection. These eyes will see him, not another, right? But we've actually looked backwards on the event of the cross. And so we have, a, we have an even easier path to the, to the why. Here's why I trust him, mm-hmm. no matter what. And so maybe it's, you know, what does C.S. Lewis say? Everything can be taken wrong. Mm-hmm. Conscience is God speaking. Whatever creation is God singing. This yeah. isn't quite right. But pain is God's megaphone to rouse the deaf world. Mm-hmm. So if there was no pain, that would be a sort of hell because then no one reaches for God. No one, no one finds him. Christ makes no sense mm-hmm. um, apart from knowing a thing or two about suffering. Yeah. That's a so it's not trying to rationalize the whole thing. It's just we have things to say that um, way more than an atheist has to say mm-hmm. about this stuff. And so it's a problem for everybody. Not just the Christian has a problem. Like, what do you do with this? Mm-hmm. But we have very powerful and very meaningful things to say. Yeah. The only, I only have two other thoughts on this. One is I was helping my uncle grow some lettuce in a greenhouse. Um, there's a whole backstory, but the, the point of it was in testing this and through, you know, looking up how other people are finding out what are the optimal conditions for the greenhouse, et cetera. If you have the perfect conditions for lettuce to grow, uh, you can grow some great lettuce. It's good. But when you compare that to lettuce that goes through, you know, a frosty night or mm-hmm. a very hot, humid day. And it goes through a variety of different temperature ranges. Not that it's constantly being abused like this, but when you have exposure to things like that, the lettuce grows much stronger. And that's mm-hmm. just like a maybe just another piece of evidence towards the you know there is value to these things. But then to go back to Job, um, and I have to go back and read that whole book again. I'm curious the knowing what we know from chapter one, but then also considering mm-hmm. that Job doesn't know that I've never read it with that perspective in mind, but then sure. to see all of the things that he went through and then to know that the promise that I will not give you a cross that's too heavy for you to bear. And then to see all of that, what Job went through and mm-hmm. still, though you slay me, I I trust you. Yep. There's a goodness gracious. A There's a, how much, how much easier do we have it today? Just maybe sometimes just witnessing atrocity mm-hmm. versus experiencing it. And for us to be able to, mm-hmm. nope, I still trust. People who live in the lap, in the lap of luxury can be the most virulent against God. Mm-hmm. And, and those who live in poverty and have seen some suffering can be those who sing the loudest alleluia with their life. And it's, so there's something going on there that, yeah, um, gosh. So there's also a powerful communication thing in Job, and that is when Job's friends first arrive, that's when they spend seven days and nights not saying a word because they see how great his suffering is. Mm-hmm. It's when they open their mouths that they manage to make things worse, but for him, because they're just dealing with a dilemma, why is he suffering? He must have sinned, and you know that's simplistic, but the, the whole book is about that dilemma. And, and Job not knowing the, the answer to it is what's, again, so interesting. Um, I've taken from that kind of a, hesitance, a hesitancy to say too much in the face of suffering, to be more humble around it. Mm-hmm. I won't hold back uh, what I call Sunday school truth. You know? mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be clever. It's just who Jesus is and how I know God loves me. 
and so on. But there's something that goes to the communication side of things. It's, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of what the parallel would be with the, you know, the last topic that we were discussing. It was, we've, I mean, my takeaway was that you can find a way to not make that the focus anymore. You can acknowledge that and then you have something greater to show. Here, mm-hmm. I think it's a little harder to do because it's much more, it's less of a logical argument. I mean, no one, right. no one has experienced hell and yet you're talking about it. Well, here, mm-hmm. people have experienced suffering and maybe are in continuous pain and suffering. And so how do you, you can't, deflecting away from that becomes rather, uh, could be rude even. And so how do you, yeah, that'd be my question is like, how do you, after acknowledging that, how do you, how do you take that in the, as a conversation? You know, a Christian and Christian met a Jew who had survived the Holocaust with all that that entails of just being in a front row seat for raw, outrageous suffering. Mm-hmm. And the Jewish man pours out his story to the Christian man. And the Christian man's answer was, was to weep and to reach across the space and hug him. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's something to that yeah. because just to throw a bunch of logical words at things just falsifies yeah, the situation absolutely. and what really is being asked at the bottom of a soul. You do what Job's friends do when you, exactly. when you open your mouth. Let me explain this to you. No, yeah. no, no, no. That's a far more appropriate response. So, yeah, um, I suppose I don't, I don't say a lot about the problem of evil for the same reason, because if 80% of people are not asking something philosophically, then what I would say simply is that it's, it's valid to say, I think, that Adam and Eve had free will, and therefore you can talk about if that love on their part is not possible, if it's not possible to disobey. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's valid. It doesn't really help since then when people became lost in their sin and just no longer possessed free will and spiritual things. We, we, we don't choose to believe in Jesus. But on that first level, I think that's a, it's true. I think that's one thing that's true. Um, what I would say about how can there be, how can this happen would be, I kind of can more easily say what the answer isn't. Any answer that limits his power is not true. Mm-hmm. And any answer that limits his love is not true. You may still have a dilemma as you sort through all of that. Not that the Bible doesn't explain it um, in its its own terms, but... Yeah. Yeah, but again, what I find is... Um, I leave that to more philosophically minded people. And there are those that maybe need to have it approached that way mm-hmm. for them. I would, that we yeah, said last I think... time, it's not logical to deny God based on evil. We said that last time. Mm-hmm. That's just a, an, it was an example of negative apologetics where you can just say, no, this doesn't make sense philosophically yeah. because you're assuming God exists as yeah. you advance that argument. You take that train of thought two or three more cars down the train and it, there's the caboose, you know, it just doesn't, yeah. there's, there's no, there's nothing else. Um, yeah. And so <clears throat> being tentative and remembering our disclaimer, mm-hmm. uh, I don't yeah. know what I think about this one, but uh, one scholar advanced this idea not that long ago. It just says, okay, we've explained the necessity of free will, even though it carried the possibility of disaster 
Mm-hmm. If love was real, then the disaster had to be possible, and that God was willing to play by the rules and not just hit a reset button, but let the let the implications be. And what I would add there, of course, um, I like to be Christ focused here, is that no no one would suffer more than God over the implications of that. Mm-hmm. Letting letting the choice be the choice, and letting the follow up be the follow up. No one suffers more than Him. But I, what I heard someone say was. Once God treats it that way and does that in the garden with Adam and Eve, then he can already see the whole world of history laid out before him. And it's fallen people, but we're in that world. You and I are in that world. Mm -hmm. And so he saw us as sinners who was dying, and he was not willing to lose us. Mm -hmm. So the starting over and trying the experiment again, he already loved the fallen world mm-hmm. and already had a plan in all eternity. It's just interesting to think of it that way. Yeah. That, um, this, this idea of, of how would you design a perfect world if you're God, but what's possible, what's not possible mm-hmm. uh, for there to be real love and all, and so on and so on. I just think that's where we cross the line into get out of God's chair. You are yeah. not him. You, you are not him. It's, you very quickly run into your own limitations. Absolutely. And so, no, I think the, the parallel of, you know, God as our father, we are his children, how much, and, and this is something I don't have experience with, but you have children. And so, you know, the, the, you know, how much, how much care do you have for them? Imagine one of them goes astray, just how much that would tear you apart. And then to, to take that even further to, you know, how much more so does God then? And then the converse of that is, you know, a single soul enters heaven and there's the angels are rejoicing. Every it's a it's a it's an incredible event. And so all of it just means so much more. That's not something I've considered, just how mm-hmm. you know the implications of there being evil and suffering in the world. Who suffered more than our God for, you know those consequences but that that even that wasn't enough to prevent the you know paving a way for us through the cross Mm -hmm. very good i think i've mentioned and quoted this book by tolian tvichian t-v-i-d-j-i-n or something like that Mm -hmm. called uh glorious ruin so the metaphor is like a bombed out cathedral is what this world is. And yeah, so I, I'm just going to not quote it anymore because I'm pretty sure I have. But it's a, it's a strong recommendation. It's just a fresh book that looks at the reality of the world still being beautiful, still showing the beauty of the cathedral, but bombed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but not forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not our reality forever. Yeah. Um, it's very temporary um, to go through. What we go through is has that important word attached to it. Yeah. So again, in the light of eternity, how will it look then? Um, I think the, yeah. given that, especially if, you know, the topic of suffering and then especially the, you know, the plausibility of evil or necessity of evil, how would that like maybe sixth or seventh further down the list type of defeater? Um, most of the conversations that I have, do touch on those because they do tend to be more philosophical. One that is on this list that does have a much more philosophical uh, underpinning to me, at least is the one that's um, 
there is no truth. There's no such thing as truth. Yep. I'm going to suggest we table that. Okay. I have a six o'clock date with my wife. And for for you and I in our space time, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that's twenty three minutes from now. Yeah. So I think well, we got three more that we put as top shelf. Can I pause tier, for a yeah. moment then and say, or yeah, what is your tomorrow look like? I know we had said maybe both of these days, and we had selected Wednesday. But if you're if you're not free, we can just pick this right up where we left off, and I can com- cut them together, or we can maybe oh, do a okay. second episode. But okay. um. Maybe I've got a day full of appointments that end at about, I think, 4.30. The question is, will I be prepared for the next day somehow? Mm-hmm. Um, so tentatively, maybe. Okay. But okay. but even even so, I think, you know, the next time that we find a time to record. Just continue. Yeah, just continue right away sure. where I, I we can yeah, just pick up, thought. like, um, the idea well, just of truth. Say, yeah. Where, yeah. Yeah, you just so. segue to it. So good. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. So I will um either I will lay bare the <laughs> the backgrounds of of what this <laughs> is <laughs> and you can hear us talk in real time about like how the strategy of how we put these things together and that will oh, be Oh, that'll our, be riveting. That'll be our who awkward ending. <laughs> who would and we'll just start okay. out the next time or I'll find a way to cleverly put these together. <laughs> we'll see. You, you've got some just dis- dessert, right? I do. I do. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe we just go through. <laughs> maybe that's what happens. We've uh, we've laid the foundation of a a next episode, continuing the defeaters. I have my. Uh, oh man, what was my dessert? I forgot. The only one I remember plastic, was the plastic wrapping. Oh yeah, the plastic. So, yeah, I was making. And I, and I said, oh, I was I making just, some chicken I today. I was making some. So chi- interesting. Yeah, I was making some chicken, and it was in a it was in a bag in the freezer it's like put it in the air fryer and it will be done in eight minutes type of thing put it in the oven it's great and it's like a it's more than just one meal right so they have a ziplock thing at the top so i'm opening the bag i'm trying to open the ziplock the ziplock is stronger than the structural integrity of the plastic surrounding the ziplock <laughs> so it just tore a hole <laughs> In the bag, <laughs> like it's in the garbage. The Ziploc is still uh, intact. It you just, didn't throw it, it away. That has to be no, no. The, chick, the chicken was useful. I was able to use it. It's just the bag. No, the Ziploc. I, oh, the Ziploc. No, I, the, yeah. it was it was worthless. I, I had to repackage the the remainder of that chicken and put it in the freezer. But it's just baffling to waste. me sometimes that like the when the thing that's meant to be reusable or the thing that's meant to be like. You open a cereal box, it's like the the glue has more structural integrity than the cardboard <laughs> that you're doing. Right. The most dirty There's, thing yeah, about it. This so is, just this I'm just black. ranting about packaging. And don't even get yeah. me started on clamshell packaging <laughs> where it demands a blood sacrifice before you can get the scissors <laughs> that I bought. <laughs> it's so funny. That was there's like a it's like a pliers, scissors, sort of a industrial strength sort of mm. cutting tool. And I could have used that to get open the packaging, but it was stuck in the clamshell. And so I was, ended up getting a big old clamshell paper cut. Oh, gosh. Oh, man. I mean, that's my dessert. Yeah. That's, that's being 61. A measure of my aging is packaging. <laughs> Are they trying to frustrate yeah. me? Are they trying to make sure I don't use their product? <laughs> because it sure feels like it. I have I have looked at two products side by side on the shelf. One of them was in clamshell casing, and another was just... You know, had I don't know some tag or something on it. I went with the slightly more expensive one <laughs> because I wasn't going to have to endure unpackaging it. 
Oh, I've got a flash drive recently. It's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I might have actually given up. <laughs> I'm never getting to it. Oh, that's the worst too when the thing that's inside it, it is fragile. So you have to be yeah. very careful about opening it. Oh, it's yeah, like, it what are you trying layer. to do? Put, make me buy two of them? Guess which one doesn't break when I try to open it? Oh, man. Yeah, it's like the jaws of life, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted dinner, you know. <laughs> I know. Is that too much to ask? Oh, medicine oh, is that way too. Sick medicines. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I could be dying here, right? You know this, right? Mm-hmm. I, could, I, could, I could really need these pills. <laughs> It's almost that. It seems like one of those fun challenges where you get like a some engineers on Reddit or something and like design the worst possible packaging for this product. <laughs> Just see what impenetrable yeah, packaging. Yeah. Oh, that's very funny. And it's always it's always plastic see through just to torture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, you it's can right see it there, the whole time, right behind the the, so the veil of. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I was expecting something like um like fonts, like like your interest in fonts. Oh. It's going to be like, like. I mean, I don't. Expect this to be interesting, but well, I'm sure it will. For be. the sake of your dinner tonight, I think we'll, we'll leave that one again for later. Okay. But don't get me on my soapbox on fonts. I just no, oh, we did that last time. Yeah, didn't yeah, we? we did. Um, okay, but you got more. Oh, I mean, I could open up to any page in that book <laughs> and just immediately just uh, the history behind the kerning of a certain. T- you know, it's all. <clears throat> Sometimes I, there's yeah yeah I don't know I I've said too much about fonts already, but. There are times when the seemingly random curiosity actually yields a new understanding about, uh, say, like why the font of a certain highway sign is the way that it is, is because they were able to test it back and forth and be like, and then all of a yeah. sudden it's like, I just find it really interesting that like, oh, so that's why that is the way that mm-hmm. it is now. I had no idea that there was so much thought put into this thing. And now you get to see, you kind of peel back that curtain a little bit. I just find yeah. it interesting. Hopefully I can keep that childlike curiosity, <laughs> childish curiosity. Uh, I just talked about a book, big portion book today of or yesterday in my communication class on left and right brain. And the mm. just to, I won't go in great detail, but... <clears throat> The book is about things that only people can do. And of course, that list is, sh- is shrinking. AI. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but Another what remains on the list, for me. What remains on the list is empathy. Mm-hmm. Computers can perform it, but they can't actually have inwardness mm-hmm. the way we do. But on the list of six things for this author named Pink called A Whole New Mind is design. And when I, when I read that, it just really hit me that every single place I put my eyes when I'm inside, like I am right now, has been designed. Mm-hmm. Every single thing has mm-hmm. been designed by somebody. And the thought that goes into things, it is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would grant you that. Yeah. yeah. The one thing I think AI will only be able to imitate is, is something mm-hmm. like that. You're mm-hmm. only going to be able to take... Um, I mean, you, you could make an argument that, you know, everything that's designed is, you know, remixing other things that you've experienced. But to do that in an incredibly thoughtful way, I think that's, that's going to be a really tough bridge to gap for, mm-hmm. for artificial intelligence, neural networks, whatever you want to call the, these new, you know, advanced com- computational algorithms. Right. Um, but... And I don't confess to know what the upper limits are of that. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. The other items were humor and mm-hmm. um, pl- play, and I'm not going to think of all of them, but 
Um, humor is that might that might actually be an interesting episode for us to talk narrative about. was another one narrative was another telling stories mm-hmm. and so again what is ai kind of pushing off that list i don't know but yeah um, telecom is there something tell a story about, about yourself <laughs> what is yeah. you what have you experienced computer <laughs> you know <laughs> oh i've tried with questions like that <laughs> I've, I've definitely tried to <laughs> cut through yeah what is so remains so artificial mm-hmm uh, my dessert maybe has some frustration to it too, but it's also more being shameless. Shameless promotion of my most recent book. Ooh. Um, our worth to him devotions for Christian worship. I only I'll say this because it's not doing that well, and I think it's some of the most mature writing I've ever done. So prepare to answer. I write without having ever studied apologetics, and it's mm-hmm. sold like forty thousand copies, which is crazy. And now uh, this isn't doing as well. I kind of maybe got lost in our, our church body's hymnal project where 17 different mm-hmm. things were published in, in that mix. But other things are frustrating. So they, my favorite sentence I think I ever wrote was a dedication to my mother, to Elaine Poston, who took me to church. And there's just so much mm-hmm. inside of those words. And it's buried on the page where you have, you know, copyright stuff. And no, yeah. one, no one sees it there. But anyway, it's a book about... Lutheran worship, and I frame it as being an ethnographer entering entering a cultural space. So, as you know, ethnographers enter a strange culture and unpack everything, the meaning of everything that they see, and try to capture it in words. Mm-hmm. Ethnographer, and so that's what I've done. It was a labor of love for about three years. I got six units, and they are on the theology of worship, ten ten devotions, the Christian Church here, walking through it. The Christian, the common service, walking through that mm-hmm. in every part. People you meet there, people who serve, musicians, volunteers, mm-hmm. technicians, and so on. The arts, 10 devotions on the arts. And then 10 devotions on departures, like um, where, would you get, where do we get worship variety in the mix of all of this? Mm-hmm. And weddings and funerals and baptisms and Very co- interesting. cultures. And so, well, I hope so. I was thinking. Is it is it based off of you, the our hymnal or is it based off of you know lutheran worship through <clears throat> thus far i would say our, our, our hymnal is a recent manifestation of a long tradition it's really so it's really kind of about both okay yeah um so i was wondering um should i send this to you should you give me your address and i will order one for you and then we can well have i was going to ask where i could where i could purchase one is well, it is it NP, nph nph Northwestern publishing house yeah is it available on like, could you go online and find it somewhere? Or sure, NPH has an NPH online. online. Okay, has a website. Yeah, um, and I thought we could have a communication episode about the communication in worship mm-hmm. with you, and we don't have to disagree. Uh, we don't have to agree on everything because mm-hmm. this is kind of a, a try not to cross a line. The, the Lutheran confessions tell us we can't judge people. We don't judge people based on forms and mm-hmm. try to maintain a breath of freedom, but this person still could disagree. Yeah. So I think that could be interesting, the communication. <clears throat> yeah. Worship as a communication from God to us and from us to him and from us to each other. Yeah. That would so, be a really fun, a really fun one. I think it, it, specifically just in the wells, is just such a variety of, you know, there are some that are more contemporary. Um, mm-hmm. I think my home church right now is a little bit, of contemporary a little bit more than, you know, there's a praise band sometimes and other times it's just, you're playing piano instead of an organ. And then, you know, being in new Ulm for five years for seven years, I forgot how to count. Um, 
<laughs> for, for the time in college and, and grad school, it was like, you didn't really have much in terms of, I think there was maybe one con- semi-contemporary service at St. Paul's, mm-hmm. but a lot of it was straight out of the hymnal Lutheran <clears throat> with the organ and, you know, being able to find beauty in all of those things. But then also going to, well, I don't know. Yeah, there's, I've also experienced, you know, had some visiting some friends and they would take me to their church and I get to observe what that was like and to see like, Mm -hmm. what are they doing differently? And so that was, I think, healthy to go through. And, you know, one of those times I heard one of the best, if we were looking at a communication analysis, one of the best sermons that I've ever heard. And then theologically, there was only one sentence where I had a, you know, a disagreement on, you know, mm-hmm. this wasn't true, but to, to hear like the different ways that worship is performed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot we can talk about. Yeah. In, in, that might even, total, that could be a series of episodes, maybe one on each of those top like, topics that you went through. Those let's, six let's topics. Just see. Yeah, so we'll see. can I order one for you and get it sent to you? Yeah, absolutely. I, would, I mean, I'd, I'd buy it. We'll get the. Should we argue over the check now? I <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that after our awkward ending. How about that? Okay. I don't have an awkward ending prepared though. <laughs> Not that I do. <laughs> that came out wrong. <laughs> I'm I, just feeling too I too beg, smooth today right now, John, I that I'm just not gonna to be different. I'm, to differ. <laughs> I'm just I'm just too on top of my game right now. I just don't see it happening. Oh. I mean, I suppose. Well, I do have an awkward ending prepared. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, great. Now would be a good time. Yeah.